Chapter 13 of Homecraft Rugs, Their Historic Background, Romance of Stitchery, and Method of Making by Lydia LeBaron Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fabric Mosaic Rugs, commonly called button, spool, or dollar rugs. Chapter 13 includes several diagrams of the rugs described, which may be viewed in the online version of the book. The spool, button, or dollar rug is, of structural necessity, a mosaic floor covering, the segments of which are fabric instead of marble, stone, glass, etc. Each bit of material is carefully fitted with the others and firmly set with stitches. In rugs that have any pretense to beauty, the arrangement of the motifs according to color gives rise to a pattern. In the old colonial rugs, this invariably assumed geometric proportions, diamonds of large or small size being most in favor. While there is a quaint charm about these rugs, the idea that thrift was the inspiration is ever-present. One can scarcely disregard the evident skillful use of scraps of available material. Yet one's heart rather warms toward the woman who, in order to add warmth to drafty floors and decoration to barren boards, contrived to fashion from what she had something to fill her needs. The button rugs certainly are ingenious and often have an appeal because of the colors in kaleidoscopic harmony. There must also be precision of design. The names by which the rug is familiarly known, button, dollar, and spool, are nothing if not prosaic. Yet they are not minus individuality, and one, the dollar rug, has a note of historic interest. It was so named because the silver dollar was employed as a pattern mold, instead of a disc of metal cut the right size. The cartwheel dollars, then made of silver, are now out of coinage, being too cumbersome to be practical, as their nickname implies, but they made excellent rug pattern molds. One is a little at a loss to comprehend why the rugs were not called coin rugs, since those making them took two or three kinds of coin for pattern molds, according to whether there were two or three discs centered one above the other. Perhaps more affluence was expressed by the word dollar than by coin, which might have been interpreted to mean mere cent. The names button and spool were acquired through the use of each as a pattern mold, and three different sizes were usually employed. There is found in all of these names a curious tendency to subordinate the structural character of the rug and to emphasize not the pattern but the object used for the pattern motif. The fact that the rug makers were actually employing a classic conception of floor covering in modified form does not seem to have entered their minds. Yet it harks back to primitive mosaic floor ornamentation, choice in design and superb in color. Mediums were varied to conform to the special application of the mosaic, and it is in this respect that the mosaic rug is distinctive. It shows a transition akin to that which took place in the prehistoric era, during which stonework achieved the artistry that was later applied to textiles. The tesserae are of fabric in mosaic rugs. It is when these rugs take on the character of historic ornament that they reach their summit of perfection. 
since this does not increase the work of the rug maker nor add to the cost of the finished floor covering, there seems to be every reason in favor of spool rugs taking a new lease on life as mosaic rugs, in which there is no hint of economy. Instead, there is a charm inherent in the antique background to set off to best advantage fine rugs in this structurally correct form. The mosaic rug illustrated is a reproduction of an ancient mosaic floor, over 2,000 years old, revealed by excavations in Pompeii and is copied as exactly as the circular spool motif permits. Those familiar with the cave canum, beware the dog mosaic, will appreciate the fidelity of the reproduction. This famous design with its caption is inlaid in the threshold of a doorway leading from the vestibulum into a Pompeian bath or atrium, which was a main room of the house. It formed a salutation to guests or strangers, just as did the words Ave or Have, which are often found. Friends evidently accepted the Cave Canum in the good spirit of those who appreciate that the dog of the household, as well as the owner, is a friend, while an importunate stranger might enter with a little hesitancy. The original use of the mosaic design supplies a precedent for its present application to fabric mosaic rugs for vestibules or outer halls and the more spacious main entrance halls in modern homes. The Cave Canum rug has a delightfully whimsical as well as classic character. It gives those who have traveled through Italy an immediate feeling of rapport as they cross the threshold being a floor covering of note to anyone who has once seen it. It has the smart element that comes from decoration that is at once striking and suitable. To complete the similarity of this replica to its original, it is developed in black and white fabric tesserae, the dog and its confining leash being silhouetted in black against a white background. The spots on the dog's body and the sharp shadows of the forelegs are done in dark gray. However, this color scheme does not necessarily have to be copied, provided such colors as are substituted are in accord with ancient mosaic work. A gray, somewhat lighter in tone than the shadow, and like the gray of the marble, can be used in place of white in the field of the rug, or an old gold tone recalling the gold so often lavishly employed in Italian mosaics, may be the choice. But two tones should be used, one modified for shadows and markings of the dog. Nothing in any way approximating dainty colors should ever be found in this or the other salutation rugs mentioned. Salve is another salutation mosaic, lettered in black, with a simple fret or Grecian border, that can well be copied. It is in the vestibule floor of a grand mansion of an old New England estate, still preserved in its magnificence. One could not fail to recognize at a glance that the owners were much-traveled persons. As a little child, I can remember being impressed by the strangeness of the greeting until my mother translated it for me, but it never lost its thrill for me whenever I crossed the threshold. There was no other ornamentation save the well-centered word 
and the chased border. This latter has to be slightly altered when used in fabric mosaic in order to fit in with the structural demands of diagonal lines extending over the rug. However, the fret is often so modified. The corners and one fret motif should be worked out on architect's crossbar paper before starting to stitch the fabric tesserae to the foundation, but no further pattern is needed for the border. The word should also be lettered in the same way. The strokes will naturally come on a slant and not be in block letter form. The pattern of the Cave Canem rug can be followed as definitely and easily as any cross-stitch design. Each mosaic bit or tessera corresponds to one complete motif in the spool rug, which, as has been seen, may be of two or three graduated discs. In the rug in question, two are used because they best simulate the original mosaic, the line of the undercircle corresponding to the setting cement of a tessellated floor in the work known as opus sectile. Directions for making the Cave Canem rug will be found in the back of the book. Nothing could be easier in rug craft than the making of a fabric mosaic rug, which consists of cutting out the motifs, arranging and securing them to a foundation, lining the rug, and finishing off the edges. Fringe may be added to the ends. In most rugs, this is desirable. One of the advantages in making mosaic rugs is that all the tesserae can be cut out and put together before any work on the rug itself is done. As the discs are small, the work of preparing them is light and is as attractive as any fancy work. Each disc applied above another should be perfectly centered so that the encircling rim of color in the disc beneath will be of uniform width. A material that lends itself perfectly to fabric mosaic rugs is woven felt. In some weights and in the finest of weaves and finishes, this is called billiard cloth, but for rug making, no such fine grade is required. This woven felt is strong and can be had in many weights and thicknesses and does not fray or separate. Fiber, true felt, and any closely woven material that does not fray and has a firm body, such as broadcloth, a high grade of flannel known as ladies' cloth, men's suiting, etc., are all admirable. The felt from old hats and other articles can be used thriftily, as in other felt rugs, and discarded clothing of the right kind, as in rag rugs. If goods with a tendency to fray is employed, all edges must be blanket stitched. This stitchery may serve a double purpose, as it can join circles together at the same time that it stops raveling of threads. Use a basting stitch or two to hold layers of cloth together, and then blanket stitch each rim down to the cloth beneath when making the motifs, at this time leaving the largest rim untouched with the decorative embroidery. It should be lightly overcast to prevent fraying when handled. When the motifs are sewed to the foundation, blanket stitch the edge of each underdisc down onto the foundation, thus simultaneously finishing the edge and fastening it in its designated place. When edges do not require embroidery, it should be omitted and each disc held down by four stitches close to its edge. 
The top stitches should be so short that they are scarcely visible, being of thread to match the color of the disc, and should be taken at quarter distances along the edge. Long understitches should be taken and the stitches set so that in each layer they come in alternate quarters of circumferences. This method of stitchery results in a rug surface that, to all intents and purposes, is unbroken and flat. The old-fashioned method of holding the motifs down to the foundation by stitches in the center only has its disadvantages, for dust will penetrate beneath the discs and then it is something of a job to keep the rug clean. In the method advised, and sometimes used in old rugs, this is obviated. A modern method of adding security to motifs and stitchery is to use some one of the various rug cements. While this can scarcely be considered within the legitimate scope of handmade rugs, the prevalent and effective use of such cements cannot be ignored. When stitches are used in the center of motifs, any one of three kinds can be employed, cross stitch, star or double cross stitch, and French knots. The first two are flat stitches and in this have an advantage over French knots that do not lie flat. In mosaic rugs and all those in which stitchery is not desired, either for necessity or ornamentation, the color of thread employed should match the disc on which it appears. Contrasting tones in other rugs may add flecks of gaiety or be in black or some very dark tone to subdue gay shades or to punctuate distances with rhythmic regularity. In all the embroideries, a single color is best to employ for a rug unless the variations are systematic, in which case the color in all duplicating motifs employed in decorative rows or in a pattern should be identical. The foundation for the fabric mosaic rug should be strong. Denim, ticking, and burlap are those most generally used. The latter should be of a good grade. Its advantages lie in the regularity of the weave, which is sufficiently coarse, both lengthwise and crosswise, to be followed when marking off the goods into working divisions. The very large, heavy linen bags in which produce is sometimes shipped make a wonderful foundation fabric, but are difficult to obtain nowadays. There are many ways of marking off foundations to ensure the precision of motif placing that is of utmost importance if rugs are to keep their structural symmetry throughout. The surface can be divided by lines running parallel with the ends of the rug, each space being equal to the diameter of the largest disc. The work in this spacing is done from side to side in longitudinal rows extending from one end of the rug to the other the colors of motifs being introduced as specified in the pattern or rough drawing of the design. In this way, the chief irregularity of the rows comes at rug ends, where fringe, set up well on the foundation beneath the last row, fills in the spaces. The semicircular ends of tesserae protruding over the fringe, arranged evenly, should be run down to the foundation. This rug construction makes it possible to eliminate all half tesserae, thus simplifying the work of making 
besides giving a more expert finish to the floor covering. It is when a rug conforms in shape to the limitations of its elements that it is found at its best. So any shape of a mosaic rug that necessitates the use of numerous portions of circles is to be avoided. Because old-time rug makers in this country disregarded this idea, many of the dollar rugs were unworthy. It will be found that oblong rugs lend themselves best to mosaic work. When rugs made according to the method described have a striped ticking foundation, the lines of the weave should run lengthwise of the rug. Also, the material should be so chosen that stripes can be marked off into groups, the spaces between being equal to the diameter of the largest tessera. As ticking stripes come comparatively close together, this grouping of lines is an easy solution of the method of marking. The tesserae in the first crosswise row, sewed down close to the foundation edge, should fit between the lines. In the second row, each tessera should be wedged between those on the first row, and the diameter of each should come precisely across the line. In each odd number row, tesserae come between lines, and in even number rows, the tesserae have diameters across lines following the method in the first two rows. It is essential to keep the lengthwise rows even, and measurements should be taken every few rows to detect and rectify any divergence. Use a ruler or tape measure and reckon distances from the lengthwise edge to the lowest part of the circumference of tesserae across the rug, not necessarily each tessera, but every three or four. This is the easiest method, for the construction of the rug does not lend itself to division lines readily owing to the drop design. In the diagram, three methods of forming the popular diamond design are shown. Diagram 1. In this, a particularly interesting design results, in which three diamonds come across the rug field. Lengthwise edges are even, and the rug ends can be finished either with the half tesserae as shown, or with fringe, as in the method previously described. The foundation is divided into lengthwise halves and crosswise quarters. Each point where the lines cross has one tessera centered on it, and the tip of each diamond point comes across either a horizontal or vertical line. Gradually build up each diamond, and when tips meet, fill in the field and border being sure that each crosswise line marked on the foundation has a tessera diameter exactly across it. This ensures even rows in a very simple way. The rug lends itself to many color varieties and harmonies. For instance, the center diamond and the border and corner pieces can be of the dull red found in oriental carpets. The end diamonds can be old blue, and the field the warm tan or camel's hair color often found in old rugs. Or, again, the centers of each diamond may vary from the outer rows, and these shades be caught up again in field and border. Such color schemes lend dignity to rugs. If dainty colors are wanted to fit in with a boudoir scheme, the rug can be developed accordingly. Diagrams 2 and 3 in these, the rug foundation is divided into quarters, 
one tessera in number two, is centered over the point where the lines cross. The diamond is given an opposite direction from number one by laying the tesserae on the line in a row across the rug. The same direction of the diamond is given in the arrangement of tesserae in number three, where they touch over the center point in the rug rather than having one directly over it. This is an easy diamond formation to employ, as the first four tesserae give the diamond center and building around it is easy. In each of these diamonds, various color schemes can be carried out and corner pieces can be introduced, but it is always a medallion diamond rug, for the width is never sufficient in a properly shaped rug for more than one diamond. When the character of the rug conforms more to the mosaic type, many possibilities of design present themselves. Small diamonds may fit together, or hexagons, in an all-over pattern with a plain border. But most attractive of all this type of rug, by whatever name it is called, are the hall welcome rugs with their inviting words and the classic cave canem of the days of Pompeii. End of chapter 13